0: It is Tuesday, April 26th, and this is People
1: Every Day. Hello out there, everyone. It's me, Janine Rubenstein. I hope you all are enjoying what's left of your Tuesday. We've got a busy show planned for you today, so let's just get into what stories are swirling around out there. There are more details coming out of the Black China versus Kardashians trial. The model is currently suing the reality TV family over economic and emotional distress after the cancellation of her own reality show, Rob and China. China's team's last big move was releasing some blistering emails sent by Chloe and Kylie to E Network, telling them to cancel the show and claiming the relationship their brother and China had wasn't real. Now that China has finished testifying, the Kardashian family attorney argued that China Offered, quote, no documentary evidence, economic analysis, or expert testimony to support her claims. In court documents obtained by People, the Kardashian attorney also argued that China offered no accounting to support her request for $109,635,021 in economic damages and then $36 million in general damages for emotional distress. And that Black China's, quote, unsupported and wildly speculative claims for damages must not be allowed to go. jury. Oof, that's nearly $150 million. A lofty goal, but, you know, who knows? I know a lot of folks were tuned in to Robin China at one point. We'll see how this goes. Moving on from one legal case to the next, yesterday, a New York judge found former President Donald Trump in contempt of court and set in motion $10,000 daily fines. The judge states that Trump did not adequately respond to a subpoena as part of a civil investigation into his business dealings by failing to produce satisfactory documents by the March 31st court-imposed deadline, as stated in the terms of the subpoena. Trump has called the investigation a politically motivated witch hunt from the start. After news of the ruling broke, New York Attorney General Letitia James said publicly, quote, for years, Donald Trump has tried to evade the law and stop our lawful investigation into him and his company's financial dealings. Today's ruling makes clear no one is above the law. Trump's legal team is expected to appeal the ruling, but things are certainly starting to get interesting. It seems like all of this might be heading somewhere soon, and just before we get into the midterms, no less. It's something we will definitely keep you updated on moving forward forward. And you didn't think we'd start talking about trials and court cases without updating you on the latest in the Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard trial, did you? More has come out in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard defamation trial. The exes are still going head to head in court as Johnny is suing Amber for a 2018 Washington Post op-ed she wrote about surviving domestic violence. There's still so much to get into here. So joining me now to catch us up to speed is our correspondent for this whole trial, People Movies editor Nigel Smith. Hey, Nigel, welcome back to the show. Hey, I'm back. Well, let's talk about what happened in court yesterday. Paul Bettany is a name that's come up a few times in this trial. And yesterday, Paul's name came up again. So why is that? Yesterday, he didn't get slung through the mud
2: like he did in previous days. This was more about his relationship with Johnny Depp being interviewed by his lawyers about Paul Bettany's relationship with Amber Heard. And so Johnny, during his time on the stand, he claimed that Paul and Amber did not get along, suggesting that Amber's ex-wife felt threatened by the time that Paul and Johnny spent together back when they were friends. Paul has since come out saying that they don't really talk Anymore, Johnny was saying really wild things. Uh, He recalled this really strange instance between Paul Bettany's wife, Jennifer Connelly, himself, Amber, and Paul Bettany and Jennifer Connelly's son, who I believe was eighteen at the time. And he described the situation where their son was very embarrassed after kind of getting scolded by Amber Heard over something that he said that was kind of incorrect. And Johnny Depp went into details about how he talked with Amber Heard behind the scenes after and told her that her behavior was not cool and that he felt that she was being very inappropriate.
1: I want to switch gears a bit and talk about the fans that are watching. Yesterday in court, the judge had to warn people watching in person to maintain order or be thrown out. The
2: judge really, really stood up for the first time and said something directly to his fans. They've been camping outside to hopefully, you know, get in to actually watch it live in person. So they're very passionate, fervent bunch. And there came a time during yesterday where Johnny Depp was, you know, he, he's not one for short sound bites. So he was talking about his career and about how he's not very familiar with a lot of his own films and that he joked about avoiding watching his own movies saying quote i'm so pathetic when it comes to knowing what movies i've done i'm sorry i just don't watch them i feel better not watching them what was the question again end quote and this caused a number of his fans to laugh out loud in the crowd and then the the judge spoke up and called for order and said that i will have you removed the rowdy people in the courtroom. So watching the case, I think it's still very divided. I don't think there's any clear winner. I keep getting asked that, you know, like who's gonna come out on top? and. From what I'm watching, none of them are. This is just a very messy and sad case. And I doubt either of them are really going to benefit from this in the end.
1: Well, one more thing I, I have to get into with you before I lose you is today's testimony. There is a psychologist who, you know, evaluated her before the trial. And that psychologist is testifying that... Amber Heard has borderline and histrionic personality disorders and that she has grossly exaggerated PTSD symptoms. I mean, um, this
2: is a legitimate, you know, person commenting on this with medical accuracy. So, yeah, I don't think it's going to bode very, very well. But again, you know, we have to remember that this is a witness brought to the stand by Johnny Depp's legal team. So I'm sure Amber Heard's side has a lot of uh, people up their sleeve that will come forward and probably try to discount everything that was said today by this person. Seems like this has been going on for a month now, but it's only been about two weeks. And so far, we've only heard from Depp's legal side, but we haven't heard from the witnesses on Amber Heard's side just yet. So once that all comes into focus, I think we'll have a better sense.
1: As always, we will continue to keep you guys updated as this trial continues to play out. And Nigel, thank you again for stopping by to break it all down with me. Thank you so much. Do you remember those days of going to the mall and shopping at dimly lit stores that vaguely resembled Southern California kind of? You know, the ones that sold bright collared shirts and and faded low rise jeans and sprayed you with musk cologne every 15 minutes. Later on, we dig into the new Netflix documentary White Hot, which details the Abercrombie and Fitch era of the 2000s and all of the controversy that's not so funny that went along with it. But first, what sort of impact will Elon Musk buying Twitter have on the battle between free speech versus the spread of misinformation? We break it down when we come back. Stay with us. Yesterday, it was announced that the wealthiest person in the world, Elon Musk, purchased the social media giant, Twitter. With the news of Musk's acquisition, the question has been raised of what sort of free speech Twitter will now tolerate, or at the very least, not censor. So joining us now for his read on the situation is People Politics editor, Adam Carlson. Hey, Adam. Hey, Janine. Thanks for having me. Quickly for our listeners, what constitutes free speech and how do social media
4: platforms censor certain types of speech? The way that people describe it, I think, often says more about their views than does about the phrase. Free speech can mean how the government restricts speech. People often associate it with the First Amendment, which says that the government cannot intrude in almost all cases with how people publish, broadcast, talk about things, right? The government can't stop you. But Mm -hmm. often people also use free speech to refer to how private companies regulate what people say. And as social media companies have gotten more and more dominant in the last 10 or 15 years, that's really become the new substitute for free speech. So the social media companies, though they are private companies and generally speaking can let in or kick off whomever they want, just like a regular business can, they've often modeled their guidelines after the government. So generally speaking, they bar certain kinds of aggressive, like fighting words-esque speech, like threatening speech, speech that would incite people to violence. They're not bound by the Constitution. They do typically restrict hateful, threatening speech, speech that exposes private information, speech about minors.
1: So with widespread misinformation becoming more rampant over the last few years, like messages surrounding racism, uh, QAnon, COVID, and the events of January 6th, Twitter temporarily suspended accounts of users like Donald Trump Jr. and actor James Woods, in addition to permanently banning individuals like former President Trump, Steve Bannon, and Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. So if Elon Musk lifted Twitter's restrictions, what does this mean for social discourse on the
4: platform? We do have other social media platforms that have very, very few restrictions. We can kind of imagine what Twitter might look like if they become more like them, like the forums 4chan or the 8chan that basically allow any kind of lewd or threatening speech, speech about private information, misinformation. So if Twitter removes restrictions like that, many people believe. Imagine a kind of wild west of the Internet.
1: So do you see Twitter changing hands like this, having a political impact in the U.S. going forward?
4: I like to remind everyone that Twitter is not real life. Twitter is not used by a majority of the public, but Twitter is a hugely popular space for influencers, for journalists, for tastemakers, people who shape the news. If Elon Musk decides to lift certain restrictions, let certain controversial figures back on, those people may not have the biggest audience online, but they will have a captive, very select audience of the people, frankly, who shape how the rest of us consume media. But... Twitter is so valuable, even though it's not super, super popular because of that audience. And just
1: one more note on the value. He paid an a, a awful lot of money for, for this.
4: Do you think it was just worth it from a financial perspective? You know, I would love to one day have enough money to be able to imagine <laughs> what it's like to spend $44 billion on something. But the way he had to finance the purchase of Twitter, he is expected to actually pay more on the interest of that debt in the coming years than Twitter makes right now in profit. But for someone like Elon Musk, I'm not sure money is always the first thing on his mind. Adam, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us.
1: I like girls that wear and fish. I
4: take grip, I have one wish.
1: If you are like a lot of people my age, when you were younger, you would go and meet your friends after school at the mall. You would walk around and check out all the fashion, and then you would make it to that one store that was blaring music that would have its windows boarded up so you would have to go and see what was inside. And you could smell it from the other side of the mall, and that scent would stick to your clothes. That is right. I am talking about Abercrombie & Fitch. Netflix has put out a documentary called White Hot, The Rise and Fall of Abercrombie & Fitch and it has everyone talking. The new documentary is really highlighting all the things that Signature Cologne could not really cover up. So to take some time to discuss it with me today is another millennial, people's Charlotte Triggs. Hey, Charlotte. Hey, Janine. I'm curious if you were an Abercrombie & Fitch person growing up.
3: I was not an Abercrombie person. I did go to a private girls' school in New Jersey and everybody else were Abercrombie & Fitch and for some reason that turned me in the other direction and made me want to wear literally anything. But I have all kinds of memories of the store, of all of this stuff. Like the ads, they're naked. They're not, I don't even remember what the clothes look like. I remember the ads. It it was like an elite, brand for some reason. I can totally remember what that cologne smells like. It
1: was so strong and it would just uh, permeate the entire mall or that section of the mall and I would take my nieces sometimes because they were really into it but it just didn't seem welcoming to me And, and that makes a lot more sense now after watching the documentary. One of the places that racism really started to play a part in this brand was in their graphic tees. For example, they had one that said, one more for the road that featured people on donkeys. The one that got the most attention read Wong Brothers, Two Wongs Make It White. And it was advertising a fake laundry service. So, why was this such a pivotal moment in the demise of the brand?
3: You'll remember like a pre Trump era, going back in time, like a pre social media era when people didn't care about a lot of things and would be casually racist in many ways. And They sold these t-shirts with these distinctly racist sayings on them and really not bad an eye. So they they describe in the documentary basically working at lightning speed to just keep filling the shelves with these stupid t-shirts. I don't think that would fly nowadays with social media. People would like buy the t-shirt, someone would be offended and it would go viral. At the time, all of those ingredients didn't really exist until about like 2007, especially the two Wongs one went viral and they actually had a lot of young Asian American patrons protest in front of the stores.
1: Well, one of the biggest moments in the doc is when you learn that the people who are speaking throughout are actually the employees that were fired for being Black or Asian and and not fitting the mold of what Americana means to Abercrombie.
3: Yes. In one case, there was a, a young man who was working in California and his boss, told him, we have too many Filipinos, so you got to go. And it's like, you know, wow. taking a, a shot in the dark that this guy even was Filipino. <laughs> that hadn't been discussed, certainly not part of any job application. There's this young Black woman who I think was working on the East Coast in a store. And she said that she was only getting night shifts for whatever reason she wanted to change her schedule. And she asked if she could be on the day shift. And she even had a friend who had volunteered to switch shifts with her. And they said, no, you can't do that. And then after she had made those inquiries, they just actually stopped putting her on the schedule at all. And two months go by and she's like, do I still work here? I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff that came up in the discovery. There's like a checklist of things that are Abercrombie and are not Abercrombie and like a vibe and like a, a look. It distinctly said natural combed hair is good. Dreadlocks are unacceptable. So, I mean, nowadays, nobody would dare say something like that. Men were not allowed to wear a gold necklace. But women could wear a necklace, but it had to be very thin and dainty. It's like all of these things that paint just like this like waspy, white, affluent, preppy picture. And anything else is unacceptable. It's just
1: crazy. Like times have changed. Like you said, Charlotte.
3: Yeah. There was a woman who was rejected from a job because she had a headscarf and that actually went to the Supreme Court. But her mm. own community said to her, why do you even want to work there at all? So one, what did they have
1: to say for themselves? And two, where are we today?
3: The documentary spans probably like 25 years of the brand or whatever. They did lose the Supreme Court case and the the class action suit. They had to appoint a DNI officer to kind of like improve the hiring practices and stuff like that. And the documentary they do interview that guy. It's very fascinating to see like kind of where they put their focus. One of the other reasons that the brand became problematic was that they were totally sizeist and like not willing to expanded to be size inclusive, which is where the marketplace started going. And in 2013, you know, body positivity movement was happening and lack of size inclusivity became totally unacceptable. And then they have a new female CEO since 2017. I find it very interesting that she's coming in in a post-Trump era to kind of like clean up their act. Mm. I think that was really the cultural shifting point for many people where it's like this stuff it's stopping and stopping right now. Like we need tangible measures and everything has to change and their sales are back up. Now they have all kinds of sizes. You see the advertisements that they have feature like a gay couple on the beach. Like it's very different vibe and serious changes have been made. Charlotte, thank you for taking
1: this trip down memory lane. I'm going to try to unremember the smell now. <laughs> <laughs> Good
3: luck with that, Janine. <laughs>
1: All right, guys, sending you off with this as someone who has a toddler that loves to say no to literally everything. Do you want to play outside? No. Do you love mommy? No. Do you want ice cream? No. (laughs) She loves blueberries, though. Every time I ask her about blueberries, it's like, yes, please. Well, this video made me laugh. I have to share it with you. It's of another little girl named Rachel, who also says no, no matter what she's asked. And it's really funny and relatable and and just a little something to make you smile.
2: Rachel, you want to play peekaboo? No.
1: Do you want to take a nap? No. Do you want to
2: sing? No. Is your favorite color purple? No.
4: Hey, Rachel. Do you think Daddy has more hair than you? Rachel, is it
1: okay to wear white after Labor Day? Yeah. I mean, I just love all of the power behind that no. I think we can all learn something from these kids. I need to exercise my no a little bit more. <laughs> well, thank you all for joining us for another episode. I will see you back here tomorrow for more of People Every Day.